Well, it is a special gift to be able to take some more complex theology and to break it down so that children can understand it. So family ministry has just week in and week out done a fantastic job at uh, constructing this. They don't follow some curriculum that some, you know, publishing companies have done. They're basically writing this week to week as they go. So thank you once again, uh, family ministry. Um, I graduated from high school in the year of 2000. Any other 2000 grads in the room? Yeah, all right. Um, and I remember during my senior year, uh, it was around Christmas time, so it was December of 1999. It was the last day before Christmas break, and we were eating lunch in the cafeteria. And I don't remember precisely how it started, but I'm pretty sure that I was the one who instigated it. No, I'm not talking about a food fight. What happened was that the entire senior class broke out into song, and the song that we sang was a chorus by the band R.E.M. that goes, it's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. And it was our smart aleck way of responding to this idea that some had that the world would end in the year of 2000. A lot driving this was the so-called Y2K or millennium bug. And of course, for you young people, the idea was that there would be this calendar-based technical glitch where all the computers would think it was the year 1900 instead of 2000. And for some reason, that would cause just massive blackouts and basically be the end of, you know, civilization. In fact, a cover of Time magazine in January of 1999 posed the question, is this the end? Referring to this event. But fortunately, after hundreds of man hours and about $100 billion of federal money, the crisis was avoided and all was quiet on New Year's Day. But later in the spring of that year, um, my classmates and I took our senior trip to New York City. And I have pictures of me and some of my friends on the ferry back from the Statue of Liberty with the city skyline behind us. And of course, the two most... Um, you know, imposing figures in that city skyline were these identical towers that were taller than the rest. They looked like pillars holding up the sky. And of course, just a few weeks ago, we commemorated the events of September 11th, 2001. And that day also was not the end of the world in an eschatological end times sense. But many media outlets used apocalyptic language in order to describe it. And so while it wasn't the end of the world, perhaps we can say it was the end of a world. It was end of, the end of a world that we once knew, and ever since we've used the language that we've been living in a post-9-11 world. Well, fast forward to today, and we are once again going through a bit of a cultural earthquake, this one a bit more slow motion. And no matter what your perspective is about the pandemic, there's no denying that it's had an effect one way or another on basically every aspect of life, of, of public life, whether it's economic, healthcare, education, social, political, I mean, it's gotten into everything. 
And while I don't believe that this is the end of the world in any eschatological end time sense, perhaps it is the end of a world. It's the end of a world that we once knew. And perhaps on the other side of this, who knows how long and to what degree we'll use the language of living in a post-COVID world. Well, in our passage today in Luke chapter 21, Jesus tells his disciples about an imminent cultural earthquake that would dramatically change the Jewish world in which they lived. And anyone within earshot would interpret what he said as the end of the world. And the passage begins with some of the disciples making comments about the temple. And indeed, the temple really was a marvel in the ancient world. Um, It was constructed over four decades under the direction of King Herod. And even the rabbis who had no respect for King Herod, even they said that no man has seen a desirable city until he has seen Jerusalem in all of its splendor. And no man has seen a glorious building until he has seen the temple in its full construction. But Jesus warns his disciples to not make any sort of assumptions based on how things appear. He says, don't be fooled by its beauty, its immensity, its glory. Don't make assumptions that this place has God's approval or is under God's protection. So what Jesus says to them in Luke chapter 21, starting in verse 5. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Now imagine you're one of the disciples and you hear this. After all, everyone in Israel in those days would make multiple trips to Jerusalem every year for the sake of the festivals. And on this occasion, they were in town for the Passover. And this was true every year, ever since they were little kids, they came to Jerusalem. Their lives really centered around Jerusalem and its temple. And so to hear that the temple was going to be destroyed... I mean, it really was a big deal because to them, this was a signpost of God's dwelling place among his people. This was the place where heaven and earth met and overlapped. This was to them, literally, the center of the universe. So for the temple to be destroyed to them, that meant the end of the world. That meant that the very fabric of reality was about to come apart. Or perhaps it meant that Messiah was coming to usher in the new age, but it doesn't seem that Jesus is in any hurry to consolidate these two events. Well, you could tell the disciples are really interested in what Jesus has to say here because they have some immediate follow-up questions. I mean, think about it. When Jesus says on multiple occasions, the Son of Man is going to be crucified but will rise on the third day, they don't have that many questions. They just go, okay, you know. They don't ask, when will this happen and what are the signs that this is about to happen? And yet when Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple, they lean in and they have questions. Starting in verse 7, 
Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? He replied, watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name, claiming I am he and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be various earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in the various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. And what we could do is we could do a brief survey of the history of the, you know, sometime in the 30s when Jesus said this and up to 70 AD when the Roman army came and destroyed Jerusalem and its temple. We can read historians such as the the first century Jewish historian Josephus or the Roman historian Tacitus, and we can read about things like the various wars in different places in the Roman Empire, Britain, Germany, North Africa. We can read about the earthquakes in places like Laodicea and Colossae and Phrygia and Pompeii that happened in the early 60s. And we can read about the the famines that happened during the reign of Claudius, one of those prophesied about in Acts chapter 11. We can read about the pestilences during the reign of Nero. So all these things, we can see that the things that Jesus mentioned indeed have a historical correspondent in that specific time. But of course, imagine being the original recipient of this report from Dr. Luke. Luke mentions in Luke chapter 1 that he is writing to a man named Theophilus. And based on the fact that Luke wrote both Luke and Acts, Luke coming before Acts, many scholars look at the events that come at the end of Acts, and from that they approximately guess that Luke was likely written sometime in the early to mid-60s. 62 seems to be um, a popular um, estimate. So imagine being Theophilus and receiving this report in 62 AD, but then some eight years later, you hear the message that Jerusalem and its temple have been destroyed. What would you do if you're a Theophilus? You would think like, yeah, well, I heard something about this. You can imagine there being this kind of emotional conflict in him, though, because what happened in Jerusalem, it's a horrible thing. Like thousands of people killed in brutal ways. But at the same time, there may be, uh, for somehow this may be a bit faith-affirming, given the fact that this man who made various claims about himself has predicted something four decades in advance, and that, that thing has now come to pass. I mean, does anyone in here want to take a guess at what's going to happen in 2060? Hopefully, we won't be going through COVID-59 in those days. But back to the perspective of the disciples. They asked the question, when will this happen, and what are the signs that these things are about to take place? But I wonder if they had another question they didn't utter out loud, but was somewhere in their hearts. I wonder if they were also wondering, if the temple is going to be destroyed, how then 
will God be among his people? And so we're going to camp out on that question for a minute while we do some theology of the temple. Now, to talk about the temple, you might think that I'm going to talk about, you know, how King David planned it and how Solomon, you know, executed its building, going back to 1 Kings, but I'm not going to start there. You might also think that I'm going to go back to the days of the Exodus and talk about the tabernacle, this tent-like structure that was going to be the place where God would dwell among his people and receive worship. But I'm not going to talk about that either. In order to talk about the theology of the temple, you got to go back to the very opening pages of Scripture, starting in the creation account in Genesis. So in Genesis chapter 1, we have God ordering creation in a seven-day structure, ending with divine rest, with God taking up rest. Now, us modern people might be wondering, you know, I've always wondered why it says God rested, because after all, you know, God is all-powerful. He doesn't get tired or weary, so why is he resting? But we remember that Genesis is an ancient book written to ancient people. And the ancient people understood something, both the people of Israel as well as its Egyptian and Babylonian neighbors and the other neighbors in the ancient Near East. They knew something. They believed that when a god or the gods would rest, this rest wasn't about relaxation. This rest was always connected to taking up residence in a temple. So this creation account in Genesis 1 is about God ordering a temple, not a building, but it's about him establishing sacred space where he would dwell. And so we then see God create basically a, a statue of himself, a creature called humanity, and he installed this image of himself in a garden. And the responsibility of humanity was to work and keep the garden. And those verbs, work and keep, are the same words used of the priests and their role in the later tabernacles and temples. And so what we have with this Garden of Eden account is that the garden is this cosmic temple, the archetype of what all future uh, temples and places of worship would be referring to. So let's have some fun with this. Um, we can go ahead and pull up the slide now. What I want to do is I want to describe the whole biblical story, the ideal of where the story has been and where the story is heading. The whole story of the Bible can be summarized with three key words. First is presence. The second is people. And the third is purpose. And of course, we have to do it with a triangle here because we love triangles here at Apex. We have more triangles than a bag of Doritos. And that is objectively funny, so if you didn't at least crack a smile, we'll pray for you later. Um, the story of the Bible can be summarized as being about God's presence among his people working together for God's glorious purposes. God's presence among his people working together for his glorious purposes. Now, presence is really important. And I think we learned that during lockdown, didn't we? 
that you can have a relationship with someone and you can see them and hear them on a screen, but it's altogether different than having them physically there with you. Is that right? Am I the only one? I mean, if you don't think presence is important, talk to any grandparent who's had to see their family through a window over the past six months. Or talk to an astronaut who's been in the outer space. Presence is important. God's presence was among his people. He walked with them in the cool of the day. And they also had a purpose. They had the purpose of this cultural mandate, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Well, we can alliterate this in another way. God's presence is his residence among his people with whom he had a relationship. And this people had a purpose of carrying out the responsibility that God gave to them. Or we can use biblical words of temple. And again, when I say temple, I don't necessarily mean a building. I'm talking about sacred space. So God's presence is his residence in sacred space among his people whom he has a covenant relationship with. And that covenant people have a purpose, and that is to carry out kingdom responsibilities. You know, have dominion, rule, subdue. So do we see that? It's a beautiful vision. But sadly, we only get about two, maybe three pages of this at the beginning before sin enters the world and throws the whole project off track. So what happens is, Humanity, who was meant to be in relationship with God, chose to heed the voice of someone else. And in doing so, they say, you know what, we, we don't want this purpose. We don't want this responsibility. We would rather live for the sake of our own kingdom, defining good and evil for ourselves. And so the sad result is that, you know, it's what theologians call the fall. But I know of one theologian who calls this the loss. It was the loss of God's presence in the sense that they had experienced it before. And so they were now evicted from sacred space, evicted from the garden. So you can imagine that, you know, whole line on that right side of the triangle just being completely disconnected. But of course, God was not willing to, you know, give up this beautiful vision. He was going to recover it, and he initiates that in the context of humanity attempting to make a name for themselves by establishing sacred space on their own terms, and that is the account of Babel. But in that context, God initiates a relationship with a man named Abram, and he says, through the family of Abram, all the families of the earth would be blessed, and they would be blessed because it was with Abram's people that God would once again take residence on the earth. And so God establishes a covenant with the family of Abraham. Over centuries, they grew to become the nation of Israel. He forms a covenant with them and says that he would establish his presence and residence among them. In Leviticus 26, he says, I will put my dwelling place among you. I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. So here we have presence and we have people.
people relationship. I will, you will be my people. I will be your God. But these people also had a purpose. They had a responsibility. They were to be a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of priests who were to represent God before the nations as God dwelled among them in a tabernacle and eventually the temple. They were to represent God before the nations. So to the Old Testament scholars in the room, how did that go? Not so well, right? Now in the Old Testament, we have basically the experience of loss all over again because the people who were meant to be in relationship with God, instead of representing God to the nations, they chose to worship the gods of other nations. And this was no mere one-time slip-up. This was a pattern over and over through centuries. And so we read in the prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 10, that the glory, the presence of God left the temple and that the people would be evicted from the promised land where they were to dwell with God and be in exile in Babylon. And during that time, this temple that Solomon had, been, had, had constructed had been destroyed. Once again, it was the loss of sacred space. However, still, God was not uh, okay with giving up on this vision. For in that very same book, Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 30, he says, And they shall know that I am the Lord their God with them. Presence. Residence. And that they, the house of Israel, are my people. Relationship, declares the Lord. And so after decades, mercifully, the people were able to come out of exile and back to the promised land. And that catches us up with this account with Jesus and his disciples here um, in the second temple period. So once again, Israel has an opportunity to be a light to the nations. But of course, if we've been following the gospel at Luke, of Luke at all, we, we see that they don't really take that opportunity. They seem more interested in keeping that light for themselves. And so this temple, as Jesus says, this is meant to be a house of prayer for the nations. This place that was supposed to represent the dwelling place of God among his people had come to represent this weird Jewish nationalism and this corrupt religious system and its leaders. And we read two weeks ago, Jesus called out some of these religious leaders saying that the scribes love to dress in their long robes and they love to be greeted in marketplaces and be invited as the guest of honor to parties and yet they devour widows' houses. So they loved popularity and riches, but they neglected to do justice and love mercy and to walk humbly with their God. And so the prophet Isaiah describes this situation as these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And so the temple had to go down. But at this point, not only was the temple corrupt, but the temple was also redundant. It was obsolete. Because what the temple had been pointing to all along, God's presence among his people, 
had become a greater reality at this point through the one whom they call Emmanuel, God with us, also known as Jesus of Nazareth. And so now it seems that the temple was like an ultrasound photo. You know, when a, when a mother is pregnant, she gets, often gets this ultrasound photo, and she might spend hours studying it, dreaming and wondering, might even put it on the refrigerator. But once the child comes, once the baby is born, the ultrasound photo can no longer take center stage. I mean, it should no longer be the first thing you show to people when they enter your house. I mean, imagine this ridiculous hypothetical scenario where a mother and father are on a couch just cooing over an ultrasound photo while baby is in our bassinet in the corner screaming her head off. Nobody puts baby in the corner. And so now the temple has served its purpose, but it's now obsolete because the reality it was pointing to has now come in Jesus. The Gospel of John chapter 1 says that in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The phrase made his dwelling is connected to the word tabernacle. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us, took up sacred space among us. God's temple presence on earth was now in Jesus. And in John chapter 2, Jesus goes and makes a scene at the temple. And he says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And his opponents think, what are you talking about? It took us four decades to construct this. But John leans over and whispers to us, Jesus was talking about his body. The whole death and resurrection thing. But that's not the end of the story. For at the end of John chapter 13, beginning of 14, Jesus tells his disciples, look, I have to go away. And where I'm going, you can't come with me. You can imagine a sense of panic in the disciples again, almost as if they're about to once again experience the loss. But he comforts them by saying, look, I'm going away to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you can also be. But in the meantime, I'm going to send a helper, a comforter, God's very spirit. And that connects with what we are um, in the next portion of our passage in Luke chapter 21, in verse 12. Jesus says, But before all this, before these signs of uh, the destruction of the temple, they will seize you and persecute you, and they will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison, and you will be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. Make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed, even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. But not a hair on your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. At this point here, Jesus says, 
don't worry about what you're going to say. I will give you words and wisdom. That there are strong implications here of Jesus' presence among them. In fact, in the parallel account in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus tells them, don't worry about what you're going to say. It's not you saying it. It's the Holy Spirit. And really, this entire section from 12 to 19 is really a preview of the book of Acts. The book of Acts, which we are very much looking forward to spending much of 2021 studying. I know that we're all looking forward to January of 2021, where we get to say, hindsight's 2020. I have four children. I have the right to make these jokes. Dad jokes. And in the beginning of the book of Acts, we have this rushing wind, these tongues of fire resting over the heads of the disciples, all, both pictures of God's presence. And so what we have is, is the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And so now, God's dwelling place on earth, God's temple presence on earth was now within his people, as God's Spirit dwelled within his people. And Later, New Testament authors would pick up on this picture, which I'll get into in, in just a second. But first, first, let's go to the end of the story, the book of Revelation. In Revelation 21, John has this vision of this city, the, the new Jerusalem coming down to earth. It's about the reunion of heaven and earth, a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. And in verse 3 of Revelation 21, John says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, the dwelling place is, of God is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Later in 21, in verse 22, John says, I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. There's no need for a building as his dwelling place because now the whole city, the whole creation is now his dwelling place. The whole thing has become sacred space. All of it has become Eden. And in the next chapter in Revelation 22, verse 5, it says, And they, the people of God, the servants of God, will reign forever and ever. Did you know that that's in the Bible? The people of God are going to reign forever and ever. So let's do a quick checklist here, if we can get the slide up again. A quick checklist. In the book of Revelation, do we have God's presence and residence? Yeah. The dwelling place of God is with the people. Do we have people and relationship? Yeah, I will be their God, they will be my people. Do we have purpose and responsibility? And they will reign forever and ever. This beautiful vision, this ideal at the beginning has been recovered and realized now at the end. It's a beautiful vision. Well, now you might be thinking, well, Chad, cool story, bro. That's some fine theology, but what do we do with this? Is this at all practical? Well, the Apostle Paul seemed to think that the concept of temple was pretty practical. 
as he applied it in a number of ways. First, he would apply it to, uh, for the sake of church unity. In Ephesians 2, he, he points out, like, look, all this time there's been this division between Jews and non-Jews, Jews and Gentiles, but God has now collapsed that dividing wall, that wall of hostility. And so now out of Jew and Gentile, God is now creating one new humanity. And out of you, God is building his dwelling place, his temple. So the implications are that there can be no racial hostility and no racial prejudice among the people of God because you all are one temple built together. It doesn't work unless there's both of you, Jews and Gentiles. Later in 1 Corinthians 3, you have the people kind of dividing up over their favorite teacher. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos, you know. But Paul says, you know, don't do that. What are you talking about? What is Apollos? What is Paul? You all belong to Christ. And so he says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. If you're going to divide up over your favorite teachers, it's not a good idea because God's temple is sacred and together you all are God's people. So we don't divide up over what, who our favorite teacher is. We don't call the church office to see who's preaching on Sunday as if that determines whether I'm going to come or not. Because it's not about the preacher. It's about coming together with the people of God to bring worship and to give God your attention. So it's not about dividing up over our teachers or our pet tertiary theological nuances. You guys are the temple. And so unless we think that this applies only to the collective, well, Paul also applies it to individuals. A few pages later in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, God, uh, Paul applies temple language to um, you know, personal holiness and chastity. Because it seems that the attitude of some was that, well, you know, since uh, you know, I'm free from sin, and my soul is now saved. It doesn't really matter what I do with my body. So I could guess, you know, I could do pretty much whatever. Like, you know, go visit a cult prostitute. You know, go and get with somebody I'm not married to. And Paul's like, no. Don't you know that you, yourself, both body and soul, are united with Christ? That you belong to Christ? And does it make any sense to take what belongs to Christ and is united with Christ and unite it with a prostitute and someone you're not married to? No way, Paul says. So he says, don't you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Look, as, as temples, as ones whom the Spirit of God dwells within, you are no longer your own. You are now shared space. And you live a lot differently in shared space than you live in your own space. And we, most of us learn this as young adults. Because after all, if you live alone in your house or apartment or condo, you can pretty much decorate however you want. You can arrange the furniture however you want. You can let the dishes stack up a little higher. 
leave your socks pretty much wherever. But if you get a roommate or a spouse, you are now in shared space and you no longer get to live as if you're in your own space. If you do, that relationship will not flourish. Does anyone know what I'm talking about here? You are shared space. It is Within you is you and the Holy Spirit. So that's how Paul applies temple. But I wonder if another key takeaway here is if we learn to practice the presence of God. That, of course, is the title of a book written about three centuries ago. The uh, iPad started talking. It started searching for me. Thanks. Go to bed, Siri. Practicing the Presence of God is a book written about three centuries ago. Um, It's a collection of letters written by a monk in France who was a former soldier who became known as Brother Lawrence of the Resurrection. And for the first 10 years after his conversion, Brother Lawrence really struggled a lot with fear, guilt, and shame. But after a while, he became more um, familiar with the grace of God. And he says this. I have to share this. He says, I decided to sacrifice my life with all its pleasures to God. But he greatly disappointed me with this idea, for I have been met with nothing but satisfaction in giving my life over to him. So he expected this noble duty of living for God, but what he was met with was delight and satisfaction from God. But he became known by, um, and, and people wanted to kind of be around him and talk to him because he became very good at learning to practice the presence of God. Meaning he learned to live and relate and converse as if God were in the room with him. But it took him time to learn to do this. But once it did, it changed his life. And the thing is, is he wasn't a man who was writing volumes of theology. He was a kitchen worker in a monastery. Doesn't that reveal to us how we should be thinking about our jobs? He says, so he would pray both at the beginning and the end of his shift, but even pray throughout and during, thanking God for his assistance, you know, co- confessing when he was taking shortcuts, but but without being discouraged or anything like that. But he said that continuing in this practice of conversing with God throughout each day and quickly seeking forgiveness when I, felt, when I fell or strayed, listen to this, his presence has become as easy and natural to me now as it once was difficult to attain. Meaning, look, I used to have a hard time with this, but now it's, it's like breathing, it's second nature. Boy, imagine what your life would be like if, if, if we could all learn just to practice as if God were among us all the time. And so maybe we begin to get into this. And so perhaps what we do, I mean, just like learning anything else, you, you, you have to start slow. You know, it's like learning to ride a bike or, or drive a car. You know, when you're first driving a car, you're, you have that checklist in your head. Like, right, I, I get in, I lock the door, I put my seatbelt on, you know, I adjust my mirrors, hands at 10 and 2, all of this. But after you've been driving for a while, you're not consciously thinking about those things. You're you're just doing them. So maybe what we do is we practice the presence of God 
maybe three times a day, around mealtime. We do more than just say grace and bless the food. But you remind yourself that God is your father, you are his child, that he is with you, his loving eyes are upon you, and you just converse with him as if he is in the room with you. And a lot of this may take place in your heart, but you stay there as long as you can. You keep that focus as long as you can. Maybe over time you get good at it, so then you practice this at the top of every hour. Every hour you remind yourself, God is your father, you are his child, his loving eyes are upon you, and you just talk with him and you stay there as long as you can. And then every half hour, every 15 minutes, 10, 5, touchdown. But what would that be like? How would your life be different if you just had an acute awareness of God being in the room with you constantly? How would you interact with the moments of fear and anxiety? Moments of frustration and anger? Wouldn't you be quickly just snatched out of walking those paths? What would it be like to live with that hope and peace and joy knowing that God is with you at all times? And I'm sure you may be thinking, sounds great, Chad. You first. And yeah, we, uh, I can't pretend that I'm natural at this, but we're all in process somewhere, aren't we? But I feel, um, I feel like I, I need to share this. And you know, perhaps this will be useful for somebody in here. Um, I shared last time I preached that my wife and I went to Niagara Falls at the end of June. And one morning I went to, you know, get up to go get some exercise, a little bit of walking, a little bit of running. And it felt like I basically had the whole place to myself. It was great. Um, and so I, I crossed the bridge to Goat Island and made it all the way to the overlook of um, Horseshoe Falls. And as you know, Niagara Falls just creates tons of mist. And at that point in the morning, about 8, 8.30, the sun was hitting the mist in such a way that there's almost always going to be a rainbow. And, and there that morning, there was just this beautiful full rainbow at the edge of the falls. Just full rainbow, super vivid. And I was like, well, well, this is just great. Well, going away from the falls was this kind of steep hill. And I decided that's where I would get some exercise and I would do some hill sprints. Why we keep ourselves in shape this way and torture ourselves, I, I don't know. But it's, you got to keep moving, I guess. Um, but I noticed that I ran and I got to the top of the hill, and when I turned around to face the falls again, the rainbow it seemed to fade a bit, and it was no longer complete. It was kind of disconnected at the top. And I thought, okay, well, it's just, it's just time for it to fade. That's fine. But as I made it back to the bottom of the hill to run again, I noticed that, oh, well, the rainbow is becoming more vivid and bright and full again. That, well, that's cool. And I did this a number of times. I noticed that the pattern was the same each time. Top of the hill, rainbow fades. Bottom of the hill, rainbow's there and bright. And so I concluded there's some scientific explanations for this about perspective. But it was an illustration for me. And in my heart, I, I almost could like sense this whisper as if God were saying to me, look, Chad, if you ever feel that I am distant from you, I am not the one who's moved. If you ever feel that your perspective of me has changed, 
I am not the one who's changed. So I don't know if it, that's helpful for anyone here, but I think that we need to remember, as it says in James, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And that's especially appropriate during a time like a pandemic where it can easily feel that God is distant and we're asking, God, where are you? What are you doing? But we remember in this passage, Jesus says to his disciples, like, look, I will give you words and wisdom. And, and I mean, the very last thing that Jesus says before he ascends is know that I am with you even to the end of the age. He assures them of his presence. But he also says to them, like, look, they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair on your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. He's reminding them of a bigger picture, the bigger story, eternity. He's reminding them that both their cultural and individual earthquakes that they were about to go through were a mere speck on a timeline of history and eternity. And we see that even during this tumultuous time of the first century, God was still at work building his church. And therefore today, we can also be assured even now of God's presence. We can also be assured of the big picture, the bigger story, knowing that this thing we're going through right now is a mere speck on a timeline of history and eternity. And that God is at work among us building his church even when we can't recognize it. So the question we should all ask ourselves today is, do we believe that he is with us? You know, are we aware of his presence? And do we trust him? Do we trust him? Well, just as Jesus reminded his disciples of the big story, we get to participate in that big story now. And so the band, you guys can go ahead and come up. We get to be part of that story and we get to taste it. So if you want to go ahead and prepare your elements, your bread and your cup. What we have here is a sign of what it took to answer this question. How can a holy God be among his sinful people? And what we're about to do points to that, points to what was done so that a holy God could be in the presence of a sinful people. For on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was eating a Passover feast with his disciples. He said, took the bread and said, this is my body broken for you. We remember that God's temple presence came to earth in the body of Jesus. That the word became a baby, was born in a body, lived in a body, was crucified in a body, was buried in a body, resurrected in a body, ascended to be at the right hand of the Father in a body, today intercedes for his people in a body and will one day return in a body and be embraced by his people in a body. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
Likewise, Jesus took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. In the old covenant, the blood was sprinkled on the people. This is something we take within ourselves. This cup is a new covenant poured out for you in my blood. you pray with me? Our Father, we are grateful for this beautiful vision that the creator of all the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, wanted to be with us, created us to be with us, created us for a relationship, and has created us for a partnership to bring about beauty and flourishing to his creation. And we have done all that we can to run that, <laughs> all that we can to mess it up. Oh, but God, you've been so insistent on bringing that together once again. And you have done that once and through all, through Jesus, through his death, through his resurrection. So that one day, you, you are in us today, but for one day, we will see you. You will be with us on earth as it was always made to be. So Lord, Help us to practice your presence on a daily basis. To remember that you are our Father, we are your people. And that your loving eyes are on us. And that everything we say and do, we do it in your presence. And be glorified, Lord, in our presence. And as we sing your praises now, oh Lord, be glorified in your people today. We thank you. We love you. We ask this in the name of God with us, Emmanuel, Jesus. Amen.